Today is Tuesday, July 6th, and what I'd like to do on my walk today is discuss the topic of how to study for mastery. And I intend this talk to be one that will be helpful for students to listen to, but also for parents. So both students and parents need to bear with me as I discuss topics along the way that may be of interest to one and not the other. But we'll study this, this uh, question of how to study for mastery. In modern schools, it's, it's understood that everyone is just there for a diploma. That's what we're in school for. We go to college for a degree. We don't pay college tuition for wisdom. That's not the purpose of a college. A college isn't necessary for wisdom, isn't necessary for life at all. A college is necessary if we decide that we would like to have the degree that the college offers. A modern school is necessary if we decide that we would like the diploma that the school offers. Outside of that, these schools and colleges are useless and unnecessary. They have nothing to do with the individual pursuit of wisdom. They're secular or temporal institutions that serve secular or temporal ends. If we want the degree, we have to follow the rules and check the boxes. But that's not the kind of education that I'm, that I'm interested in personally, and it's not the kind of education that I'm going to talk about in this talk. When I talk about studying for mastery, there's... There's an assumption made up front that there is some topic that's worth studying for mastery. Not studying just so that we can pass a test or even ace a test in a school. We don't study for mastery in such an environment. We just study based on what the teacher who creates the exam and who determines what passing and failing scores will be, whatever that teacher determines is the standard at which our studies aim. So just to give an example to to bring this down to earth, when I was in college, I had a sincere interest in studying ancient history for mastery. But at that point in my life, I didn't even know where to begin. I wanted to study ancient history for mastery because I wanted to be able to interpret and teach sacred scripture. I wanted to understand the historical context of the, of the books and stories of sacred scripture and I knew that to to have that knowledge, I needed to master ancient history. 
And so I studied ancient history as part of my college major, not because I thought for one second that my professors could give me the knowledge I desired. Many of them weren't even Christians. But I knew that the pursuit of that study in college, given the resources and opportunities that I had at that point in my life, could help me to learn about the sources, and then I could pursue the study of them on my own. And so a college class would begin. Let's say one of my favorite classes was um, a, a course on the Hellenistic world taught by a professor, Thomas Figuera, who was a mentor to me at Rutgers University. The course in the Hel- on the Hellenistic world is a fascinating subject. But in that course, all I needed to know was what Dr. Figuera was going to require of me. And I needed, to, I needed to choose what I studied, because if I went outside the requirements of class, it would do me no good on the assignments or exams. And so I had to, to, temp, to, to control myself. And while I was in that course, I had to just do what... Dr. Figuera wanted me to do. So if he assigned the reading of a certain chapter, I needed to read that chapter. But if the next chapter was very interesting, but not assigned, I needed to skip that chapter and just do what the professor was going to test me on. That's how one studies for a course. My eldest children are now in college and and they're they're learning this as they go through college and they they took it for granted while they were growing up that the things that we taught them at home we taught them things that were valuable things that were recommended to us by wise men and saints they complained about that at times when they were younger and they They took it for granted that many of the studies were actually interesting and helpful. And now that they're in college, they find that there's so much ridiculous subjectivity from assignment to assignment or from test to test, from class to class. And the greatest challenge of earning high grades in college or in any school is learning to figure out your teacher, to figure out how he or she grades papers, how he or she designs exams, and then to learn to prepare for that specific teacher so that you can master his or her subjective grading criteria and earn the highest possible grade. All of that said has nothing to do with the study for mastery for one's own self-improvement, for one's own knowledge, for one's own pursuit of wisdom. 
the first assumption when we talk about studying for mastery is that we're not in some artificial classroom studying for some short-term optional purpose or end. We're studying for the sake of wisdom, for the benefit of our own lives, for our actual benefit in everyday life. We have a topic or a subject or a skill that's worth studying for mastery. And also in this talk, we'll, we'll assume that we're talking about philosophical subjects or academic subjects and not practical arts, which are not appropriately pursued through, through book learning. The best way to learn a practical art is through apprenticeship with a master. We're not talking about practical arts. We're talking about philosophy and the intellect. How to study for mastery. Now, thankfully, the study materials that need to be mastered are easily accessible. As I just said, if we want to learn a practical art, let's say we want to learn how to, how to garden. The best way to learn to garden is not to read a book. The best way to learn to garden is to live with a master gardener and learn by living with him every detail of the work of gardening. Because we'll find that a master gardener is not a man who just wanders out into the garden and tries to grow some tomatoes. A master gardener lives a life that's ordered around his gardens throughout the year. He's doing things in November and December and January, even though there's not a plant in the ground. He's doing things in June to prepare for planting in August. He's doing things in March with a view to what he knows is going to happen in July. And this practical experience of the entire annual cycle of gardening, which even becomes more complex when we consider the effects of perennial gardening, is where we really learn the art of the master gardener. And anyone who wishes to become a master gardener wishes to learn that whole life, the whole art. And that throughout history was always pursued through apprenticeships, where one actually lived with the master and offered his help in exchange for that opportunity to, to learn Jesus taught his disciples in this way, which shows us just how important Jesus considered 
the practice and life of the Christian faith, that he led his disciples not in some artificial classroom setting. He didn't come into the world and and start a seminary with a degree program and, and a course catalog. He went down into the streets, chose a dozen men, and invited them to live with him, to watch him, to eat with him, to pray with him, to learn how to be Christians. Discipleship is simply an apprenticeship. Now, getting back to academic subjects or philosophical subjects, we need to do the same thing. We need to see this work as an apprenticeship in philosophy. And thankfully, the great masters have left for us books that systematize and communicate to us the principles and elements of the different philosophical topics that many of them had to do the work of finding out and organizing and articulating. And so, for example, if we want to learn the science of ethics, Aristotle has done the work for us and with historically extraordinary wisdom and and industry has assembled a treatise on the subject that presents the knowledge of that subject systematically to us. And our work at this point in time is not to treat the subject as if it's an unsettled question, which is why talk about the Socratic method is so so silly. But we are simply to master Aristotle's treatise on ethics. We're to study it, to memorize it, to to meditate on it and, and master it so that it becomes our own. We're to make it our own by internalizing it. And then, as we internalize it, we're to begin thinking from it and answering questions from it and responding from it and allowing the wisdom of Aristotle's ethics to begin to transform all of our thoughts and renew our minds. And so we have to ask, well, how do we go about this study for mastery? How do we do this? And that's what I'd like to talk about here. So just to to summarize the few important points that I've made to get this meditation started... First, I said, this kind of study that I'm talking about is not the kind of study that goes on in schools or colleges. This is study of real subjects 
in their real context for their real purposes, not mere artificial degree studies. Second, I said the topics that we pursue in this kind of study are not topics appropriate for for school courses or lessons, but they're topics that are worth investing ourselves in. Topics that are so difficult and challenging that they could only be justified by some long-term use and benefit. We can't afford to waste our time and energy on topics that are not most important. And that's a matter of of self-discipline. For example, my my sons like to play uh, PlayStation and they figured that because I had a background in, in football and and knew the game, that I would enjoy playing the PlayStation Madden football game. But when you when you look at the game, the game requires so much practice and learning. There's so much to learn to play the video game. And you have to step back and ask yourself, is the time that I would need to invest to become skilled at this game responsible? I don't doubt that it would be fun to play the game. But in order to be successful at the game, these games are complicated. And someone has to invest hours and hours and hours of of study and practice to gain mastery at these games to make them fun. It's not like Pac-Man back in the old days. These games are, are complicated. And there's almost no end to how much one can invest in the game to gain greater and greater mastery. That's one of the things that's addictive about these games is that the people who play them imagine that they're really accomplishing something. And that's true of any subject, not just video games. That's true of any book. That's true of any, any study, any pursuit. One can do the same thing with cooking. One can get so into cooking that we're no longer even asking the question, what do we need to eat? We're preparing meals and putting together all these complicated dishes and following all these complex recipes without any consideration for whether or not this is even necessary. It's the same thing as playing video games but we think it's okay because it's food. And yet we can live with perfect health, with the most simple meals made with the simplest ingredients. Our bodies don't need all of that expertise in cooking and preparing meals. So this is a problem we always have to resist. We have to ask, 
what are the topics that are worth our time and energy, which are limited. And those topics are the topics of the classical Catholic curriculum. These are the topics that are of the greatest importance to all human beings. We look at the the classical Catholic curriculum, we see grammar and reasoning and rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy, moral philosophy, natural philosophy, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, world history, literature. And we can step back and say, wow, yeah, those are the most important subjects. Those are the most important subjects. Now, some will complain and, and raise practical questions like, what about, what about business management? What about accounting? What about website development or marketing? And people will raise those questions who have never studied the classical Catholic curriculum. But what I challenge you to consider is that if you had mastered the classical Catholic curriculum, you would think of these practical subjects very differently. In fact, you wouldn't be thinking of them inside the box that modern people think of them in. You'd think of them with an entirely different mind. And I would say you'll actually understand them better than the modern classes and books and websites will explain them. That's a separate topic I'm not going to get into, but you can't imagine that someone with a mastery of the classical Catholic curriculum is going to struggle to figure out how to file his taxes or manage a business, things which are are done by common people. These things are not difficult. We have to stop imagining that things that are common are actually the challenging subjects that need to be studied and realize that we're neglecting the actual challenging subjects, which, if we would pursue them, would give us wisdom and insight into a thousand different practical subjects. So when we talk about the topics that are most significant, we're talking about the topics that are arranged in the classical Catholic curriculum. And so now we have to ask, how do we study these topics? How do we gain mastery in these most important subjects? And before I go a step further, let me say that the pursuit of this mastery is not something you get when you're 21 years old and then use for 40 to 50 years of your life as an adult. The pursuit of this mastery is something that you'll spend your entire life working for, gathering it and advancing step by step through every phase of your life. And the goal of this study is to have as great mastery as possible as early as possible. A good example of this 
an ideal of this would be Alexander the Great, who had the unique and extraordinary historical privilege of having the greatest philosopher who ever lived as his private tutor. Alexander the Great started with an extraordinary personality, a historically extraordinary spirit. And to that extraordinary spirit was added a historically extraordinary education where he was taught philosophy and the classical liberal arts by the world's greatest philosopher, face to face. And of course, the result of that education was the conquest of the world. But everyone begins this pursuit and progresses in this pursuit at different times and at different paces, with God's providence determining what leisure we have or can devote to these studies. Some choose to devote their whole lives to them and live a contemplative life. Others have responsibilities, temporal affairs to manage, and they study these things in whatever leisure they can obtain. And they intentionally discipline themselves to use their time where they're not engaged in necessary business for these studies. And that's one of the characteristics of a virtuous life. But we know what the topics are. And now the question is, how do we study them? And as I said, these are not to be understood as some subjects that you're going to devote a year to and gain mastery in. These are the ultimate subjects. And you need to devote a proportionate amount of time and energy to knowledge that's as valuable as this. This is the knowledge of which Solomon speaks in the Proverbs when he says that wisdom is more precious than all things. There is nothing else to which it can be compared. Gold or silver cannot be compared to it. Solomon explains that if a man possesses wisdom, he possesses everything. There's nothing to which it can be compared. And if we think about how diligently men work, how, how greatly men sacrifice for the hope of some money, students are willing to live on the verge of poverty to get a college degree and hope that that college degree will serve as a ticket to some job that will give them money or honor. And when we think about how hard men have worked to build great businesses, all the stories of famous business owners and inventors who worked enslaved around the clock 
year after year in hope of some financial gain. And we consider how hard men are willing to work for some temporary benefit that may be taken away from them as soon as they get it, or as, as quickly as they get it. And to this we're comparing eternal wisdom, wisdom that guides a man in every area of his life, in every decision, in every practical art, in every relationship, what kind of effort is to be devoted to the pursuit of wisdom? If we look around and ask what kind of effort men give to the pursuit of wisdom, we find that it's most slothful, indifferent, lazy. Men have no taste for wisdom. There's no interest in it. They'd like it if it could be turned maybe into a YouTube series that they could sit on the couch and watch as they drink a soda with the air conditioner blowing on them. But if they've got to work for it, to lose sleep for it, to fast for it, to pray for it, to work for it, to say no to other things for it. Their interest in it will quickly disappear. So this isn't a subject that you go and spend three years working on and then walk away with a certificate of wisdom. This is a lifelong pursuit. And you need to count the costs no matter how old you are, whether you're 14 years old or 65 years old. It's the greatest pursuit in the human life and no time devoted to it, no effort or money devoted to it will be regretted. So how do we study this? Well, fortunately, as I said, we have masters who have left us their teaching in writing for us to study. Their teaching is incredibly affordable because it's in the public domain and is available in digital format for a price of absolutely zero dollars. The most profound philosophical works, the greatest instruction in world history, is the most affordable of all study materials and the most neglected. And so, if you look in the Classical Liberal Arts Academy, you'll see the entire curriculum laid out with all of the master texts, the works of the masters throughout the centuries. And to master these great topics, we need to simply master these great works. These are not the books of the great books curriculum that's promoted popularly. These are the master texts of the classical liberal arts, of the great philosophers, and of the doctors of the church. 
of the prophets and apostles, all available to you at no cost if you're interested in them. Easily accessible. Hundreds, if not thousands of years after they were composed. All of this is arranged on the Classical Liberal Arts Academy website, if you're interested. Now, we need to get to the actual specifics of how to study. How to study for mastery. So with all that taken for granted, we understand that this pursuit is not for some diploma or degree. We understand that this is not some short, relatively easy study to work through. This is not something that we're going to master and possess at a young age. This is something that we're going to work for and sacrifice for throughout our entire lives. Using what we learn at each step of the way, and by doing so to make ourselves more worthy of greater grace and greater wisdom in the next phase of our life. This is what the parable of the talents teaches us. If we're given a little by God, we don't pray for more. We simply put that little to work. And when God sees that the little he gives us is used well, he'll reward us with more. And this more is not more money or more worldly pleasure or honors. It's it's wisdom and spiritual grace. So how do we study this? Well, let's begin, take any book, any of these works written by wise men for students who want to become wise men. And the first thing we do in any lesson so we'll stick with classical ethics as our, as our example. The first task in studying for mastery is to learn what we need to learn. To learn what we need to learn. And the way that we do this is by taking the first chapter of some master text and simply reading through it from beginning to end. Just as a survey to see what the lesson contains. We need to learn what we need to learn. Many people say that when you study, you begin to realize that you know less and less. And that's the point of this survey, is to realize that this is a topic or a subject that we don't know about. And we need to see what the chapter contains, what topics are addressed, and just prepare ourselves for the study of them. So if we we were to read the first chapter of Aristotle's Ethics, we would see that Aristotle opens his work on ethics with 
a discussion of ends. And he would talk about things and throw some unfamiliar words like architectonic at us. And we'd read through this chapter and see, okay, so I see what the, this first chapter is about. It's about ends and human actions. Um, it's about different kinds of ends. Some ends are greater than other ends. There's this word architectonic that I saw. There's another word energizes, which seemed kind of weird. Okay, so I have an idea of what this first chapter is about. That's the, that's the purpose of a first reading or a survey of the lesson. That's the first step in how to study for mastery. Take a survey. Learn what you need to learn. Once that first step has been completed, then we need to settle in to dig in our heels, as it were, and get ready for real study. And what we need to do is reread the lesson carefully and take notes and in our notes outline the ideas presented in the lesson. Now, there's, there's a method to this. When you take a writing class, you're taught that there should be one significant idea per paragraph. There should be one idea represented in each sentence, and so on. And so when we open the work of some great master, should we expect to find those ideas present in his method of writing, or should we assume that he doesn't even understand the basic rules of sentences and paragraphs? Of course, we can assume that wise men know how to write and speak. So we can expect that there is going to be a helpful division and arrangement of ideas in what we read. And we want to summarize this in our notes as we read through the chapter. We have to realize that a wise man will never say something or write something that's not necessary. And he'll also not leave out anything that is necessary. The things that he says, every line, are significant. And if he says something that doesn't appear to us to be significant, we should still make note of it and realize that it is significant to a wise man, but that we don't yet see that significance. And so our goal in taking notes is to simply distill from the text the ideas in each paragraph, in each sentence, and make, a, make an outline of them so we see the structure of the ideas that the author, this wise man, is presenting to us. We want to see the message 
in outline form because a wise man thinks in terms of genus and species and communicates in terms of organized systems of thoughts and ideas. And we want to draw out that order from his teaching. And so as we read, we know that every paragraph represents some great idea. Every chapter represents some great idea. Every sentence contains some necessary idea that serves the broader topic of the chapter or book. And we want to take notes and draw out each of those ideas so we can see the structure of what the wise man is teaching to us. That's going to take some time and that second reading where we study to really learn the content of the lesson and see this structure of ideas is the most challenging part of the study. Most students never do this. Now, once we've done that, we'll notice that in the lesson there were some terms used by the philosopher, by the teacher, which we're not familiar with and which we need to be careful that we don't assume we're familiar with because the meanings of words change over time and are used differently in different contexts. So we need to take some time to look up words whose meaning is obviously important in what we're reading. Even if we assume that we know them, it's good just sometimes just to look up words, English words in the English Oxford Dictionary or the Oxford English Dictionary. I wouldn't recommend any other dictionary but the Oxford because there's something unique about the Oxford English Dictionary. It's a historical dictionary. And what that means is that the Oxford English Dictionary records the different usage of words in different periods of time. So if a certain word was used in a certain way in the 1700s, but today it's used in a different way, the Oxford English Dictionary will make that clear. So if you're reading a translation that was made in the early 1800s, which is when most of the translations that I use were made, it's good to look in the Oxford English Dictionary and look at the usage of words in that period. And it will help you to get a clearer sense of the meaning of the words that you're reading. So make use of a dictionary. Make a list of terms that are significant in the lesson and look them up in a dictionary. And make sure that you know exactly what those words mean. Don't rely on familiarity. Because you've heard a word before or think you know what it means, doesn't necessarily mean that you understand the full range of meanings of that word. For example, 
in modern in modern usage we we talk about the word prevent we say um, it's good to try to prevent sickness or to prevent injuries and prevent gets this idea of taking care of yourself preventive health means everyday self-care that's intended to keep disease away. Like the old saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Keeping the doctor away is prevention. And that's how the word is most commonly used today. It's not really used in any other sense than that idea of caring for yourself so that you don't get sick. But the word prevention has a more general meaning. It simply means to go before, to do something before something else. So if someone, if you were standing in a line and someone cut in front of you, that person prevented you. And that's, a, that's an uncommon usage today, but in, let's say, 1800, that may have been the real usage for that word. And so when you see that word in a book you're reading, it's necessary for you to know what the author intended by that word, not how that word is used in your own generation. So that's important. There's also an important lesson to know about meanings and definitions of words. That's true of of all languages, especially classical languages. Words are used in different senses. There's a literal or historical sense of a word. So we can, through the study of what's called etymology, we can learn the meaning of a word and where that word originally came from, what its original meaning was in its original context. And this is called the literal meaning of the word. But then there's also what's called a figurative or metaphorical use of the word, where that word is used in other contexts where the same idea is represented, but in a different sense. And words have both literal and metaphorical meanings. And understanding these different meanings and usages is important. If you have a good dictionary, for example, if you use the old, the old Oxford Latin dictionary, Lewis and Short dictionary, that's the one, you'll notice that when it lists the, the definitions for words in the dictionary, it will actually categorize the, de- the definitions as literal and metaphorical, which is very helpful. So the meanings of words, the senses in which words are used, is an important part of your study. You'll often find that the definition, a good definition, a true definition, does more to explain a subject than a thousand-page book could ever hope to do. For example, if I were to take the word faith, 
and walk among Christians and ask, what is faith? I would get vague, uncertain answers. Everyone who I talked to would believe that they know what faith is. But when asked for a definition, they won't be able to give a true definition of faith. If you go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church and go to the section on the virtues, as I talked about recently, you'll find a definition of faith, and that definition will answer a thousand questions you may have about the Christian life, because the true definition of faith makes so many other issues that depend on faith so clear and easily or so, so clear and easy to understand. So, as you go through a reading, make a list of terms that you believe are significant in this reading, and take time to study those terms. Look them up in the Oxford English Dictionary. If you're studying a Greek or Latin work, look them up in a good Greek or Latin dictionary. The best Greek dictionary is normally... Uh, the Liddell and Scott Greek Dictionary, published by Oxford. The best Latin dictionary is, is the Lewis and Short uh, Dictionary, published also by Oxford. The best English dictionary is the Oxford English Dictionary. Make use of those dictionaries. Look words up. Because the definition, a good definition, may be more useful for your study than a thousand pages of explanation without a good definition. So that's the third step of the study for mastery. The fourth step as you study is to make a list of questions that come up in your mind as you study. Anything in the lesson you don't understand anything that doesn't make sense, any thoughts that come to mind as you're studying. For example, you may be studying the lesson and say, wow, this makes me think about choosing my vocation. I never thought about, you know, what is the end? What, what am I really seeking? What do I really want to do? What's the end of, you know, I think about money or this or that, but those aren't ends. What's the real end? When you have those moments where your study leads you to ask questions or, or have some interesting thoughts, those questions and thoughts need to be jotted down. Those are often some of the most important results of your study of the writings of wise men. You'll be provoked to many, many interesting meditations or questions or new topics. If you're studying in one book and you're, you read about a topic and you're like, I don't understand what that topic is. And the author takes it for granted. I need to study that topic. You can follow these rabbit trails to fill gaps in your learning that will prevent you from making progress in the pursuit of wisdom. This is how I originally learned about the classical liberal arts. I was studying sacred scripture, and to study sacred scripture, I would read scripture and then I would read commentaries by authors that I knew about. 
old Protestant authors, because I was a Protestant at the time. And I would read John Owen or John Calvin. And I would notice them quoting certain people. They always quoted a person named Augustine, who I didn't know. They quoted Cicero. They quoted Seneca. And I didn't know who these people were. And so, as part of my study for mastery, I sought them out. I looked them up. So I would look up Augustine and see, who is this guy? What books did he write? And I would say, oh, wow, he was a a Christian who lived in the 400s. He wrote tons and tons of books and treatises and letters. He's considered one of the great fathers of the church. Wow, cool. I'm going to start reading him. So I'll go look in the library, see if I can find one of his books, and I'll start flipping through it to get to know this Augustine, this Augustine who John Calvin quotes in his commentary. And how about this Cicero guy? Who is Cicero? Oh, Cicero is a Roman statesman and orator and philosopher who wrote all these books teaching classical philosophy. Oh, cool. I need to start collecting his works and flipping through them as well. And Seneca, what about him? And that's how I built my knowledge of the classical liberal arts by, by insisting on pursuing mastery. And any time that I encountered a name or a reference to a book that I wasn't familiar with, I, I researched it and looked it up and figured out who it was, what it was, when it was published, whether I could get a copy of it, and so on. And that's where my study of the classical liberal arts came from. You need to do the same thing in your studies. When you see a reference to someone or something or some illustration that draws from some mythical story or some historical event, you need to to search that out. Jot it down and search it out. The internet can help you to get started. Some people or many people criticize sources like Wikipedia because they're not academic, but that's stupid. Wikipedia is a great starting place to get your first ideas about a, about a topic and then to also have lots of sources that you can then follow and, and get into more detail. So don't listen to fake academics who like to criticize useful resources. A simple free resource like Wikipedia or the Catholic Encyclopedia online can help you get many studies started just by giving you an introduction to a topic and then connecting you to a number of other resources you can then pursue to go into more detail. Many of my most important studies started with simple Wikipedia articles where I looked up a topic I'd never heard of before and then saw links to sources and then followed those sources and then followed those sources to other sources and years and years later, I can look back and say, yeah, that whole entire study started with a simple Wikipedia search or a Catholic encyclopedia search. I can say that I first learned of the seven liberal arts from the article in the Catholic Encyclopedia on the Seven Liberal Arts. Simple, simple look to the encyclopedia 
for a for a phrase that I kept seeing that I didn't understand. And I found there a most incredible article that explained the whole history and the details of the classical liberal arts. Simple sources, free resources, nothing nothing fancy. But you need to have the the diligence, the desire to know, to look the things up, to not accept any topic that's referenced that you don't know. Look it up. Find out information, even if it's just a little bit of information. Don't accept ignorance. Especially today, you have resources to find information. So you want to list terms you're not familiar with. You want to jot down questions you have that arise as you read. You want to jot down thoughts that you have, thoughts that are provoked by the readings. Jot these things down. Next, as you start to get a clear sense of what the lesson contains, you want to ask yourself, how does this lesson relate to other subjects that I study? For example, in Aristotle's Ethics, you're reading about ends in the first chapter, different kinds of ends, and some ends serve other ends, and some ends are greater than other ends. And you read this, and you, you should ask yourself, how does this affect, or how does this relate to other studies of mine? How does this relate to uh, my study of foreign language, for example? How does this relate to my study of mathematics? How does this relate to my study of, of sacred scripture or the catechism of the church? How does this lesson, this wisdom, relate to other subjects that I'm studying? Meditate on that. Reflect on that. Because what, what, what needs to happen is this wisdom needs to trickle down and enlighten all of your studies. This is how wisdom changes your life. It needs to work itself through all of your studies, all areas of your life. And you need to ask yourself, how does this relate to my other studies? And you'll find that it often becomes a source of light that leads you to understand the true purpose of other studies and to make better use of them. That's why wise men are wise in every subject. If you find a wise man, you'll find that he can teach any subject because his wisdom leads him to know what to look for. The next thing you need to do is ask yourself more generally, how does this lesson, how does the content of this lesson apply to my life? In what areas of my life might this lesson be helpful? Because again, we want this wisdom not merely to know about a subject, but we want this wisdom to enter into our lives and to reform us. We want it to sanctify us, to direct us, to help us to avoid errors, to give us prudence. We want to think how this, how this lesson can help me in my daily living. 
Very simple from ethics. The first chapter on ends, we can ask, what is my end? What is the purpose of my life? What am I doing? Why am I here? What's my purpose? How is anything that I'm doing in my life make sense? What is my end? What is the chief end of my life? Where can I, where can I get the answer to that question? Let these lessons enlighten your whole life by meditating on them. This is the point of meditation. After these meditation questions, you want to take time after you've studied the whole lesson and feel pretty comfortable with all the content in it. You want to write a brief summary of the lesson. Brief. You don't want to paraphrase the whole lesson. You don't want to rewrite the lesson. That doesn't prove that you're smart. What you're trying to do is is boil down the real main idea of this lesson. To show that you really grasp the main point that Aristotle intended to communicate in this first chapter of his treatise on ethics. What is that first main idea that Aristotle sought to communicate? Briefly summarize the lesson. Now, once you've done all that, if you have a good outline, if you've made a good outline, what you should consider is memorizing that outline. Memorizing that outline. If you study diligently enough, you'll find that by the time you finish studying a lesson, you'll almost have the text itself mastered and memorized. If you study carefully enough, if you study for mastery, you study a lesson for mastery, you will find that you may have the, the, the text almost memorized. But here's a good exercise. A good exercise as part of this memory stage of the study is to recite the lesson. Recite the lesson. So you should be able to, from memory, just like I'm doing right now, you should be able to say, okay, Aristotle's Ethics, Book 1, Chapter 1. How does it begin? Every action, every on and on through the... And so you can recite the lesson and see if you can have the mind in you which was in Aristotle on this first topic. And see if you can recite the lesson, or rather, work to recite the lesson. Maybe not every detail, but you'll often find that if you understand the lesson, getting every detail becomes simple because you studied it carefully and you know how the sentences all relate to one another, and each sentence helps you with the next sentence. For example, I pray the the Benedictus and the Magnificat every day in morning and evening prayer. And I can sing 
the Benedictus and the Magnificat from memory, from beginning to end. But it's funny that if you were to ask me to say the Benedictus, I would struggle. Or say the Magnificat. I would, struggle. I would have to actually sing it to myself. Because that's the context in which I've memorized it. But I can recite it because I've recited it and recited it and recited it. And each time I recite it in prayer, I rely less and less on the text and more and more on my own recollection of it. And the same thing will happen as we study and study and study the master text. And this is one reason why it's important to limit the books we study to only what is necessary. It's not good to be widely read, a mile wide and an inch thick. It's much more important for you to focus on the writings of the wise, the master texts, and spend all of your time there. That's why we're supposed to meditate on Scripture day and night. Mastery of Scripture is far more important than familiarity with a thousand different works of literature. Keep the number of books you study few and study them for mastery. Now, fortunately, in the Classical Liberal Arts Academy, for each of these lessons, I prepare a set of comprehension questions, and these questions lead the student to do exactly what I just described. They walk the students through each of these steps in the pursuit of mastery, from the first reading to the second reading and outline to considering the terms that are presented, any unknown vocabulary items, then to think of how the study applies to other subjects, to think of how the study applies to our life in general, then to briefly summarize the chapter, and then to work on the continued study and recitation of the lesson. Remember the principle, especially when you start new studies, remember the principle that the beginning is half of the whole. The beginning is half of the whole. What that means is because these master works build chapter by chapter, the first chapters are the most important chapters. If you don't understand chapter one, If you don't master chapter one, you have no hope of mastering any others. The time that needs to be invested in the first chapters, the effort that needs to be invested in the first chapters is extraordinary. And you need to be willing to work as hard and as long as it takes to master the first lessons. You'll often find The first lessons are the most difficult lessons in the whole course, in the whole book. My daughter was recently struggling with the second lesson in classical arithmetic. And when she finally got it and finished and was able to to complete the comprehension questions and had a pretty good understanding of the lesson, I said, that's the hardest lesson in the whole course. If you can finish chapter two in classical arithmetic... Everything else is a breeze. 
And many courses are like that. And many people start and quit because they don't have a teacher to explain to them, no, no, no. This is a very hard chapter. And the beginning is very difficult and sometimes very boring. But once you get these principles and master these first lessons, then you get to put this knowledge to use and it unfolds in the lessons to come. And that's where the real fruit and benefit is found. Keep going, keep going. Let's get through these first lessons. I provide tutorial videos for many courses, for the first lessons especially, because they're difficult and boring and and kids can't see the value of them and they need help to to work through those first few lessons and understand why, why they're important and what the author's doing so that they can then benefit from the rest of the works. This is one of the benefits of having a teacher. One of the greatest effects of a good teacher is that he's able to help students through the difficult moments to help them persevere in their studies because the teacher has already traveled down that road and he knows where the difficult points are, where the dry points are, and he can help the student along through those difficult stretches and get the student to those places where the fruit can be enjoyed. But in the Classical Liberal Arts Academy, I provide these steps in the comprehension questions that are used as the assessments for each lesson. And the students work through these questions, completing the steps of studying for mastery, and then submit them to me for review. And I can look over and make sure the students are figuring things out. And then if there's any points that the students don't understand or they'd like some help with, they can just make notes of them in their summaries. And I can then respond and work with the student and help them along. So I've already done much of this work of not only laying out the study materials, but also taking the method by which we're to study for mastery and putting it into a system that students can just get to work with and work through and just focus one lesson at a time, one assignment at a time, and work through the real classical Catholic curriculum studying for mastery as they go. I think that's all that needs to be said on this topic. What's important for parents to realize is that you may not be able to help your children study for mastery in subjects that you've never studied. And you need to have the, have the humility and sincerity to acknowledge that. It's no big deal. We all know modern education is problematic. That's why we're working to restore the classical liberal arts. You don't need to be embarrassed by the education that you were given. You didn't choose the education you were given. So there's nothing to be embarrassed about, but be honest. Don't let your limited education limit your children's education by pretending that you are the teacher. If you don't have the best education, then the best thing you can do for your children is to help them find it and seek out people who can help them. And that's what we do in the Classical Liberal Arts Academy. I think you can tell by my talks that 
that I'm zealous for these studies. This is my 24-7 pursuit. This is what I'm doing all day, every day, and I've been at it for 25 years now. I believe it's my, my calling in life. I believe God's given me unique, unique gifts and opportunities to do this work. And you need to make use of the work that we do and make use of us as helpers to help your children get an education that, that you would not be able to provide them with on your own. You have an important role to play as the parent in the child's life. You don't need to try to be the teacher. So as parents realize that the study for mastery in the classical liberal arts and classical philosophy and Catholic theology may be beyond your ability, and that's no big deal. If you want to help your children, simply put them in a place where they can get the help that they need and simply work to support them as a parent. Just help them. Communicate with those teachers and ask, what can I do? What can I do? How can I help? Because there are many things that parents need to do other than teach that are often neglected in children's lives and which cause problems that ultimately undermine the children's ability to pursue a rigorous education and study for mastery, especially in the classical Catholic curriculum. So there's lots to do as a parent other than pretend that you're a philosopher. By getting help with teaching and with grading and things like that, support for your student when he has a question, having a place where he can go and ask that question and get help is a duty of parents when they can't be the help themselves. So make use of us. That's what we do. And for students, you have to see that this is about work. It's a long-term goal. In business, the wisest men play the long game. If you look at men like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, the billionaires of the world, you'll often find that when their peers around them were making decisions based on short-term goals, how they could get money, how they could have some fun, how they could live easy. The men who today are the most successful in business are the men who said, no, I'm willing to sacrifice my short-term benefits for what I believe are going to be these long-term benefits. And today, everyone praises them, but when they were younger, they were made fun of because they weren't the guys having the fun, hanging out with everyone, playing games and so on. They were grinding behind the scenes, building the infrastructure of knowledge and skills and connections and resources that would later become responsible for the inventions that they brought into the world, the businesses that they built, the solutions that they discovered and so on. So you're going to have to ask yourself, am I the kind of person who just seeks short-term goals and never looks beyond what's right in front of me? Or am I the kind of person who can look 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road and make decisions today that I'll be glad I made then? I can tell you when I was a college student, 
I spent most of my time with old men. I didn't hang out with other college students. I spent time with religious men. I spent time with professors who were like mentors to me. I spent time with old people who were just friends, whose culture and lifestyle I wanted to learn. There was one couple who, there were 70-year-olds, retired couple who had beautiful gardens and kept a little old bookstore as a hobby. And my wife and I, when we were college students, used to visit with them just to, just to talk with them and learn about life from the perspective of elderly people so that we could make decisions when we were in our 20s that we would be glad we made when we were in our 70s. Spend more time with wise people. Solomon in the Proverbs says, He who walks with wise men will become wise. Find wise men and walk with them. Talk to them. Hang out with them. Chat with them. Call them on the phone and talk to them. Ask them questions. Get advice from older, experienced men. And when they give you advice... Realize they're talking with experience that you don't have. And while you may think you know better, you likely don't. And make choices today in your life to study and invest your time and energy in pursuits that older, wiser men will tell you you should pursue. What greater pursuit can there be that's recommended to you by history's wisest and best and oldest men than the study of the classical liberal arts, of classical philosophy, and Catholic theology. I hope this has been a helpful talk. As always, I ask you to do me the favor of liking it if you like it, commenting, and sharing it. Those tokens of engagement are helpful to me in my work in promoting the promotion of or promoting the restoration of the classical liberal arts. It's a simple way that you can help. Share a link on a social media page. Like and subscribe on the YouTube page. These little free actions are actually very helpful. So please consider that. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel so you get a heads up when new talks are posted and and ask questions. I'm always looking for topics that are of interest to, to other Christians, controversial topics that you might not find others willing to talk about or or get into, or topics that you'd just like to hear a different perspective on. Let me know what questions you have or topics you'd like to hear thought through and examined, and I'll make them a subject of a future talk. I hope this is helpful. God bless your studies.